calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 171. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So it's the final week we're taking submissions for the Nigerian Scam Spam Story Writing Competition. Check out the intro to episode 168 for all the details. Send in your stories to Drabblecast at yahoo.com with the header Nigerian Scam Spam. We'll be announcing the winner on next week's Trifecta Special. This week, however, part two of Mongoose by Elizabeth Baer and Sarah Monette. I know you folks are probably dying to get into this conclusion, so we're going to go ahead and hop past the Drabble this week. <gasps> and get right into part two of the story, right after a quick recap. Previously in part one of Mongoose, wayfaring interdimensional creature hunter Israel Irizari is called to Kadath space station concerning a possible infestation of toves, hanging, dripping creatures which, aside from being a general nuisance, tear holes in the dimensional fabric and allow entry to larger, more dangerous things. Irizari's companion, Mongoose, is a creature referred to as a Cheshire cat, which has quite the nose and appetite for toves. It isn't long before Irizari finds that Karath's infestation has grown out of control, and several predatory wraths, and most importantly, a breeder, have already slipped through the dimensional fabric. And to make matters worse, Irizari and Mongoose find themselves having to make room for the political officer Sadhi Sanderson, intriguing, mysterious, and not entirely trustworthy, as a hunting partner. The only thing that stank more than a pile of live toves was a bunch of half-eaten ones. Going to have to vacuum scrub the whole sector, Sanderson said, her breath hissing through her filters. If we live long enough to need to, Irizari thought, but had the sense to keep his mouth shut. 
You didn't talk defeat around a politico, and if you were unfortunate enough to come to the attention of one, you certainly didn't let her see you thinking it. Mongoose forged on ahead, but Irizari noticed she was careful to stay within the range of his lights, and at least one of her tendrils stayed focused back on him and Sanderson at all times. If this were a normal infestation, Mongoose would be scampering along the corridor ceilings, leaving scattered bits of half-consumed tove and streaks of bioluminescent ichor in her wake. But this time, she edged along, testing each surface before her with quivering barbels, so that Irizari was reminded of a tentative spider or an exploratory octopus. He edged along behind her, watching her colors go dim and cautious. She paused at each intersection, testing the air in every direction, and waited for her escort to catch up. The service tubes of Karath Station were mostly large enough for Irizari and Sanderson to walk single file, though sometimes they were obliged to crouch, and once or twice Irizari found himself slithering on his stomach through tacky, half-dried tove slime. He imagined, he hoped it was imagining, that he could sense the thinning and stretch of reality all around them, see it in the warp of the tunnels and the bend of deck plates. He imagined that he glimpsed faint shapes from the corners of his eyes, caught a whisper of sound, a hint of scent, as of something almost there. Hypochondria, he told himself firmly, aware that that was the wrong word and not really caring. But as he dropped down onto his belly again to squeeze through a tiny access point, this one clogged with the fresh corpses of newly slaughtered toves, he needed all the comfort he could invent. He almost ran into Mongoose when he'd cleared the hole. She scuttled back to him and huddled under his chest, tendrils writhing, so close to out of phase that she was barely a warm shadow. When he saw what was on the other side, he wished he'd invented a little more. This must be one of Kadath Station's recycling and reclamation centers, a bowl ten meters across sweeping down to a pile of rubbish in the middle. These were the sorts of places you always found minor tove infestations. Ships and stations might be supposed to be kept clear of vermin, but in practice, the dimensional stresses of sharing the space lines with Boojums meant that that just wasn't possible. And in Kadath, somebody hadn't been doing their job. Sanderson touched his ankle, and Irizari hastily drew himself aside so she could come through after. He was suddenly grateful for her company. He really didn't want to be here alone. Irizari had never seen a Tove infestation like this, not even on the Jenny Lind. The entire roof of the chamber was thick with their slug-like bodies, long lure tongues dangling as much as half a meter down, small flitting things, young wraths nearly transparent in their phase shift, filled the space before him. As Irizari watched, one blundered into the lure of a tove, and the tove contracted with sudden convulsive force. The wrath never stood a chance. Najina, Mongoose said. Najina, Najina, Najina. Indeed, down among the junk in the pit, something big was stirring. But that wasn't all. 
That pressure Irizari had sensed earlier, that feeling that many eyes were watching him, gaunt bodies stretching against whatever frail fabric held them back. Here, it was redoubled until he almost felt the brush of not-quite-in-phase whiskers along the nape of his neck. Sanderson crawled up beside him, her pistol in one hand. Mongoose didn't seem to mind her there. What's down there? She asked, her voice hissing on constrained breaths. The breeding pit, Irizari said. You feel that? Kind of funny, stretchy feeling in the universe? Sanderson nodded behind her mask. It's not going to make you any happier, is it? If I tell you I felt it before? Irizari was wearily, grimly unsurprised. But then, Sanderson said, What do we do? He was taken aback, and it must have shown, even behind the rebreather, because she said sharply, You're the expert, which I assume is why you're on station to begin with, and why Station Master Lee has been so anxious that I not know it. Though with an infestation of this size, I don't know how she thought she was going to hide it much longer anyway. Call it sabotage, Irizari said absently. Blame the Christians, or the Gillies, or the disgruntled spacers, like the crew of the Caruso. It happens a lot, Colonel. Somebody like me and Mongoose comes in and cleans up the toves. The station authorities get to crack down on whoever's being the worst pain in the ass, and life keeps on turning over. But she waited too long. Down in the pit, the breeder heaved again. Breeding wraths were slow, much slower than the juveniles or the sexually dormant adult rovers, but that was because they were armored like titanium armadillos. When threatened, one of two things happened. Babies flocked to Mama, Mama rolled herself in a ball, and it would take a tactical nuke to kill them. Or, Mama went on the warpath. Irizari had seen a pissed off breeder take out a bulkhead on a steel ship once. It was pure dumb luck that it hadn't breached the hull, and of course, once they started spawning, as this one had, they could produce between 10 and 20 babies a day for anywhere from a week to a month, depending on the food supply. And the more babies they produced, the weaker the walls of the world got, and the closer the bandersnatches would come. The first thing we have to do, he said to Colonel Sanderson, as in, right now, is kill the breeder. Then you quarantine the station and get parties of volunteers to hunt down the rovers before they can bring another breeder through or turn into breeders themselves or however the hell it works, which frankly, I don't know. It'll take fire to clear this nest of toves, but Mongoose and I can probably get the rest. Fire, Colonel Sanderson. Toves don't give a shit about vacuum. She could have reproved him for his language. She didn't. She just nodded and said, How do we kill the breeder? Yeah, Irizari said. That's the question. Mongoose clicked sharply, her Irizari noise. No, Irizari said. Mongoose, don't! But she wasn't paying attention. She had only a limited amount of patience for his weird interactions with other members of his species and his insistence on waiting, and he'd clearly used it all up. She was Riki-Tiki-Tavi, and the breeder was Najina, and Mongoose knew what had to happen. 
She launched off Irizari's shoulders, shifting Faze as she went, and without contact between them, there was nothing he could do to call her back. In less than a second, he didn't even know where she was. Are you any good with that thing? He said to Colonel Sanderson, pointing at her pistol. Yes, she said. But, forgive me, isn't this what Cheshires are for? Yeah, against rovers, sure, but Colonel, have you ever seen a breeder? Across the bowl, a tove warbled, the chorus immediately taken up by its neighbors. Mongoose had started. No? Sanderson said, looking down at where the breeder humped and wallowed, and finally stood up, shaking off ethereal babies and half-eaten toves. Oh, gods! You couldn't describe a wrath. You couldn't even look at one for more than a few seconds before getting a migraine aura. Rovers were just blots of shadow. The breeder was massive, armored, had no recognizable features save for its hideous, drooling, ragged-edged maw. Irizari didn't know if it had eyes or even needed them. Mongoose can kill it, Irizari said, but only if she can get at its underside. Otherwise, all it has to do is wait until it has a clear swing and she's... He shuddered. I'll be lucky to find enough of her for a funeral. So, for what we have to do now, Colonel, is piss it off enough to give her a chance. Or... He had to be fair. This was not Colonel Sanderson's job. If you'll lend me your pistol, you don't have to stay. She looked at him, her dark eyes very bright, and then she turned to look at the breeder, which was swinging its shapeless head in slow arcs, trying, no doubt, to track Mongoose. Screw that, Mr. Irizari, she said crisply. Tell me where to aim! You won't hurt it, he'd warned her, and she nodded, but he was pretty sure she hadn't really understood until she fired her first shot, and the breeder didn't even notice. But Sanderson hadn't given up. Her mouth had thinned and she'd settled into her stance, and she'd fired again at the breeder's feet, as Irizari had told her. A breeding wrath's feet weren't vulnerable as such, but they were sensitive, much more sensitive than the human logical target of its head. Even so, it was concentrating hard on Mongoose, who was making Toves scream at various random points around the circumference of the breeding pit, and it took another three shots aimed at the same near front foot before the breeder's head swung in their direction. It made a noise, and Irizari and Sanderson were promptly swarmed by juvenile wraths. Oh shit, said Irizari. Try not to kill them. I'm sorry, try not to kill them? If we kill too many of them, it'll decide we're a threat rather than an annoyance. And then it rolls up in a ball, and we have no chance of killing it until it enrolls again. And by then, there'll be a lot more rats here. And quite possibly a bandersnatch. Sanderson finished. She batted away a half-corporeal wrath that was trying to wrap itself around the warmth of her pistol. If we stood perfectly still for long enough, Irizari said. They could probably leech out enough of our body heat to send us into hypothermia, but they can't bite when they're this young. I knew a Cheshire man once who'd swore they ate by crawling down into the breeder's stomach to lap up what it had just digested. I'm still hoping that's not true. Just keep aiming at that foot. Irizari had to admit, Sanderson was steady as a rock. 
He shooed juvenile wraths away from both of them. Mongoose continued her depredations out there in the dark, and Sanderson, having found her target, fired at it in a nice, steady rhythm. She didn't miss. She didn't try to get fancy. Only after a while, she said out of the corner of her mouth, You know my battery won't last forever. I know, Irizari said. But this is good. It's working. How can you tell? It's getting mad. How can you tell? The vocalizing. The wrath had changed to a series of guttural huffing noises, interspersed with high-pitched yips. It's warning us off. Keep firing. All right, Sanderson said. Irizari cleared another couple of juveniles off her head. He was trying not to think about what it meant that no adult wraths had come to the pit. Just how much of Kadath's station had they claimed? Have there been any disappearances lately? He asked Sanderson. She didn't look at him. There was a long silence before she did. None that seemed like disappearances. Our population is by necessity transient, and none too fond of authority. And, frankly, I've had so much trouble with the station master's office that I'm not sure my information is reliable. It had to hurt for a political officer to admit that. Irizari said, We're very likely to find human bones down there, and in their caches. Sanderson started to answer him, but the breeder decided it had had enough. It wheeled towards them, its maw gaping wider, and started through the mounds of garbage and corpses in their direction. What now? Said Sanderson. Keep firing, said Irizari. Mongoose, wherever you are, please be ready. He'd been about 75% sure that the wrath would stand up on its hind legs when it reached them. Wraths weren't sapient, not like Cheshire's, but they were smart. They knew that the quickest way to kill a human was to take its head off, and the second quickest way was to disembowel it, neither of which they could do on all fours. And humans weren't any threat to a breeder's vulnerable abdomen. Sanderson's pistol might give a breeder a hot foot, but there was no way it could penetrate the breeder's skin. It was a terrible plan. There was that whole 25% where he and Sanderson died screaming while the breeder ate them from their feet up. But it worked. The breeder heaved itself upright, massive, indistinct paw going back for a blow that would shear Sanderson's head off her neck and probably bounce it off the nearest bulkhead. And with no warning of any kind, not for the humans, not for the wrath, Mongoose phased viciously in, claws and teeth and sharp-edged tentacles all less than two inches from the wrath's belly and moving fast. The wrath screamed and curled in on itself, but it was too late. Mongoose had already caught the lips of its, oh, gods and fishes, Irizari didn't know the word, vagina, cloaca, ovipositor, the place where the little baby wraths came into the world, the only vulnerability a breeder had, into which Mongoose shoved the narrow wedge of her head and her clawed front feet and began to rip. Before the wrath could even reach for her, her malleable body was already entirely inside it. And it, screaming, scrabbling, was doomed. Irizari caught Sanderson's elbow and said, Now would be a good time 
very slowly to back away. Let the lady do her job. Irizari almost made it off Kedath clean. He'd had no difficulty in getting a berth for himself and Mongoose. After a party or two of volunteers had seen her in action, after the stories started spreading about the breeder, he'd nearly come to the point of beating off the steelship captains with a stick. And in the end, he'd chosen the offer of the captain of the Ericsson, Abujam. Captain Alvarez had a long-term salvage contract in the Cooper belt, cleaning up after the ice miners, she'd said with a wry smile, and Irizari felt like salvage was maybe where he wanted to be for a while. There'd be plenty for Mongoose to hunt, and nobody's life in danger. Even a bandersnatch wasn't much more than a case of indigestion for a Boojum. He'd got his money out of the Station Master's office, hadn't even had to talk to Station Master Lee, who, maybe from the things he was hearing, wasn't going to be Station Master much longer. You could either be ineffectual, or you could piss off your political officer. Not both at once. And her secretary so very obviously didn't want to bother her that it was easy to say, we had a contract, and to plant his feet and smile. It wasn't the doubled fee she'd promised him, but he didn't even want that, just the money he was owed. So his business was taken care of. He'd brought Mongoose out to the Eric Zahn, and insofar as he and Captain Alvarez could tell, the Boojum and the Cheshire liked each other. He'd bought himself new underwear and let Mongoose pick out a new pair of earrings for him. And he'd gone ahead and splurged, since he was, after all, on Kadath Station, and might as well make the most of it, and bought a selection of books for his reader, including The Wind in the Willows. He was looking forward, in an odd, quiet way, to the long nights out beyond Neptune, reading to Mongoose, finding out what she thought about Rat and Mole and Toad and Badger. Peace or as close to it as Israel Irizari was ever likely to get. He'd cleaned out his cubby in the transient barracks, slung his bag over one shoulder with Mongoose riding on the other, and was actually in sight of the Eric Zahn's dock when a voice behind him called his name. Colonel Sanderson. He froze in the middle of a stride, torn between turning around to greet her and bolting like a rabbit, and then she'd caught up to him. Mr. Irizari, she said, I hoped I could buy you a drink before you go. He couldn't help the deeply suspicious look he gave her. She spread her hands, showing them empty. Truly, no threats, no tricks, just a drink to say thank you. Her smile was lopsided. She knew how unlikely those words sounded in the mouth of a political officer. And any other political officer, Irizari wouldn't have believed them. But he'd seen her stand her ground in front of a breeding wrath, and he'd seen her turn and puke her guts out when she got a good look at what Mongoose did to it. If she wanted to thank him, he owed it to her to sit still for it. All right, he said, and added awkwardly, thank you. They went to one of Kadath's tourist bars, bright and quaint and cheerful and completely unlike the spacer bars Irizari was used to. 
On the other hand, he could see why Sanderson picked this one. No one here, except maybe the bartender, had the least idea who she was, and the bartender's wide-eyed double-take meant that they got excellent service, prompt and very quiet. Irizari ordered a pink lady. He liked them, and Mongoose, in delight, turned the same color pink, with rosettes matched to the maraschino cherry. Sanderson ordered whiskey, neat, which had very little resemblance to the whiskey Irizari remembered from Planetside. She took a long swallow of it, then set the glass down and said, I never got a chance to ask Spider John this. How did you get your Cheshire? It was clever of her to invoke Spider John and Demon like that, but Irizari still wasn't sure she'd earned the story. After the silence had gone on a little too long, Sanderson picked her glass up, took another swallow, and said, I know who you are. I'm nobody. Irizari said. He didn't let himself tense up because Mongoose wouldn't miss that cue and she was touchy enough and he wasn't sure if she decided the proper response was to rip Sanderson's face off that he would be able to make himself disagree with her in time. I promised. No threats. I'm not trying to trace you. I'm not asking any questions about the lady you used to work for. And truly, I'm only asking how you met this lady. You don't have to tell me. No, Irizari said mildly. I don't. But Mongoose, still pink, was coiling down his arm to investigate the glass, not its contents, since the interest of the egg whites would be more than outweighed by the sharp sting to her nose of the alcohol, but the upside-down cone on a stem of a martini glass. She liked geometry. And this wasn't a story that could hurt anyone. I was working my way across Jupiter's moons five years ago now. Ironically enough, I got trapped in a quarantine. Not for vermin, but for the black rot. It was a long time, and things got... ugly. He glanced at her and saw that he didn't need to elaborate. There were Arkhamers trapped there, too, in their huge old scow of a ship. And when the water rationing got tight, there were people that said the Arkhamers shouldn't have any. Said that if it was the other way around, they wouldn't give us any. And so when the Arkhamers sent one of their daughters for their share, he still remembered her scream, a grown woman's terror in a child's voice. And so he shrugged and said, I did the only thing I could. After that, it was safer for me on their ship than it was on the station, so I spent some time with them. Their professors let me stay. They're not bad people, he added, suddenly urgent. I don't say I understand what they believe, or why, but they were good to me, and they did share their water with the crew of the ship in the next berth. And of course, they had Cheshire's. Cheshire's all over the place, cleanest steel ship you've ever seen. There was a litter born right about the time the quarantine finally lifted. Jemima, the little girl I helped, she insisted they give me pick of the litter. And that was Mongoose. Mongoose, knowing the shape of her own name on Irizari's lips, began to purr and rubbed her head gently against his fingers. He petted her, feeling his tension ease, and said, <laughs> And I wanted to be a biologist before things got complicated. Huh said Sanderson. Do you know what they are? Sorry? 
He was still mostly thinking about the Arkhamers and braced himself for the usual round of superstitious nonsense, demons or necromancers or whatnot. But Sanderson said, Cheshires, do you know what they are? What do you mean, what they are? They're Cheshires. After Demon and Spider John, I did some reading and I found a professor or two. Arkhamers, yes, to ask. She smiled, very thinly. I've found, in this job, that people are often remarkably willing to answer my questions. And I found out. They're bandersnatches. Colonel Sanderson, not to be disrespectful. Sub-adult bandersnatches. Sanderson said. Trained and bred and intentionally stunted so that they never mature fully. Mongoose, he realized, had been watching because she caught his hand and said emphatically, not. Mongoose here disagrees with you, he said, and found himself smiling. And really, I think she would know best. Sanderson's eyebrows went up. And what does Mongoose think she is? He asked, and Mongoose answered promptly, pink dissolving into champagne and gold. Jagular. But there was a thrill of uncertainty behind it, as if she wasn't quite sure of what she'd stated so emphatically. And then, with a sharp toss of her head at Colonel Sanderson, like any teenage girl, said, Mongoose. Sanderson was still watching him sharply. Well? She says she's... Mongoose. And Sanderson really wasn't trying to threaten him or playing some elaborate political game because her face softened in a real smile and she said, (laughs) Of course she is. Irizari swished a sweet mouthful between his teeth. He thought of what Sanderson had said, of the bandersnatch on the Jenny Lind wriggling through stretched rips in reality like a spiny, deathly puppy tearing a blanket. How would you domesticate a bandersnatch? She shrugged. If I knew that, I'd be an Arkhamer, wouldn't I? Gently, she extended the back of her hand for Mongoose to sniff. Mongoose, surprising Irizari, extended one tentative tendril and let it hover just over the back of Sanderson's wrist. Sanderson tipped her head, smiling affectionately and didn't move her hand. But if I had to guess, I'd say you do it by making friends. was our story. Hope you enjoyed. I'm going to cop out of the witty banter about this story and stick in part of a review that listener Mark Simmons gave of the story on his blog, The Burning Zeppelin Experience, because I don't think I can do any better. He said, the story's got grit and fancy in equal measure, just like real life. I firmly believe that if we lived under the constant threat of being eaten by terrible creatures from beyond space and time, the first thing we'd do is make up silly nicknames for them. It's the human way. Indeed it is, Mark. Indeed it is. 
I first read this story in an awesome anthology called Lovecraft Unbound, edited by Ellen Datlow, which I highly recommend, by the way, and fell in love right away. I wanted to produce it in a big screen for the ears kind of way. Hope it pulled you in as much as it did me. If it did, hey, this is a great week to donate to us. How about throwing 10 bucks in the hat? Roughly the same price as a crappy summer movie. You can find donation links off of our main page, drabblecast.org. Lots of time and resources went into this one. We'd be much obliged. Just like we're obliged to this week's kick-ass donor of the week. Morgan Olson, a.k.a. The Morgue. Morgan lives in Portland, Oregon with his soon-to-be wife, who apparently really wants to own a royal dandy pet pig. He's currently in school again, figuring out what he wants to be when he grows up. And just like most people in Portland, his interests include Tuvan throat singing. Also, Chen Tai Chi, writing, street cart food, and people watching. Thanks, Morg. We appreciate it, buddy. All right, you folks know the drill. Each week we have a 100-character TwitFix story winner that we pick from the Twabble section of our discussion forums. We post it on Twitter, at the Drabblecast, and we run it on the show. This week's winner was first-timer NoWiki1283, with this little treasure here. Some folks say the ghosts of the skeptic society still haunt these back roads, eternally debunking the supernatural. Think you can write a good story using only 100 characters? Give it a shot, man. Post it in our forums. Okay, last but never the least, you're probably wondering what phenom did this week's awesome episode artwork, the big old upright breeder wrath. Well, who else but Skeet Sienski? Nice cloaca on that thing, Skeet. Ooh, saucy! Skeet's got lots of neat stuff at his site, skeetland-art.com. Go check it out. So that's our show, weirdos. Tune in next week for Trifecta Special 12. Remember, the Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but share it freely. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, with a sharp toss of the head like a teenage girl, that this isn't a story that could hurt anyone. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.